welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeru. What does it mean to be human in a world of AI? That is the big question that I talk about today with my guest. Um, it's a funny one, isn't it? The amount of AI that's proliferated recently, large language models and everything that we're doing with them, it's funny, when you talk to it, sometimes it feels human. And if it feels human, is it? I remember using ChatGPT and feeling, hey, this really feels like I'm talking to something conscious. And is it conscious? Is it sentient? Um, I certainly trust it. And people do certainly trust large language models when they're talking to them. We know that from studies that have been done in healthcare, that they certainly can build trust. And if they're building trust in a very human way. They're communicating to us in a very human way. What does that actually mean? Now, my guest today is Harvinder Power. He is using AI and large language models, and he's building actually a co-pilot for physiotherapy. But he's also interested in these questions too. And I had a wonderful chat to him about essentially the philosophy of AI. Uh, I joke in this episode that I'm woefully underqualified to talk about philosophy, AI, all those different things. But hey, I'm just an interested passerby, uh, whereas Harvinder is a doctor, practicing doctor, and uh, a technologist. He codes, he's building this um, company himself, Motix. He's He's, you know, building the technology himself. So he's very much involved in this stuff. I was merely uh, an anesthetist once upon a time. So I manipulated consciousness for a living is one way you can describe what we do as anesthetists. And so I do have an interest in this. I do think about consciousness and I do think about AI and the relationship between AI and consciousness and sentience and what that means for us as humans. And I do know the more that I use AI, it makes me think about what is the definition of a human? What does it mean to be human? Um, we talk about all of that stuff in this episode, so I hope you enjoy it. Harvinder, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How you doing, mate? Hey, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome, sir. You're welcome. Um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Harvinder? So I'm speaking to you from the Midlands, actually, so back home right now. And uh, I call this my office because I pretty much never leave here, apart from the days in <laughs> London. Nice. Mate, listen, obviously you and I know each other incredibly well. Uh, we are all, you have certainly been my agony aunt, even as soon as a few minutes ago, listening to some of my nonsense, uh, would have made it quite a good podcast, actually. I <laughs> probably should have like, probably should have recorded that. Maybe we, we'll do, probably maybe should have we'll, recorded it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll do that next time. But obviously this has come about because, yeah, you're on the Health Tech Pigeon podcast the other week. Um, and we talked loads about AI and we talked, we got onto some like, I guess you could call it philosophical questions about AI, which I'm super keen to explore with you because you're someone that obviously works on AI. You've got the human connection to being a clinician and all that side of things as well. And yeah, I think we can just have a chat about obviously what you do and your background and all that sort of stuff. But then, yeah, I think some of that more kind of perhaps existential stuff about AI and just getting your thoughts and feelings on it would be quite cool because I think you come at it from uh, the tech angle, the hu being a human <laughs> angle, like the AI angle, the doctor oh, angle. I, exactly. I mean, just before we did this, we were just asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to be human in the age of AI? Yeah. And I think that's that's the great big question of, of the decade, really, isn't it? It's what is humankind? It is. It is. And I definitely want to get into that once people know who you are so for the benefit of our listeners mate why don't you tell <laughs> us your story uh my journey really started um just probably at the end of my medical school days so i studied medicine obviously graduated became a doctor but the the truth of it is really i never truly wanted to be a doctor at heart going into it so i was sort of you know quite naive didn't really know what i wanted to do so I did medicine, which I'm very thankful for. You know, it's given me a lot of structure in my life and it's given me a lot of understanding of who I want to be as well as where I want to be. It was really towards the end of my medical school days that I started to understand that my passion really lies in the integration of technology in healthcare. So actually, how can we use technology to improve healthcare, not just for, you know, a few patients here and there, but to fundamentally affect every life on the planet? So how can we use technology to scale healthcare across the world? And once I started getting into that, it made me think about actually, you know, we can do far more with with some technological innovation than we can with just day-to-day -day treating people as a doctor or as a clinician, as I'm sure 
many of the listeners will probably feel the same way. Um, so since then, uh, I ended up practicing medicine for a couple of years. I finished my foundation program that was over in Oxford. Um, that was at the height of COVID, which uh, was a bit of an experience in itself. Um, but obviously after that, I then felt it was the right time to, to move away. And uh, I only practice on a locum basis now, but uh, my main focus is Motix. So Motix, uh, very broadly, started the company whilst in medical school. And the main focus of what we do now is actually in sort of managing the physiotherapy space, which is a bit odd, actually. You'd think that, you know, doctors should only focus on the medical space. But turns out, actually, the physiotherapy space is often very underserved as well as a community where, you know, there are 10 million patients every year in the UK alone who need rehab. And of those, 70% never do their exercises. So they get very poor recovery and they come back again with worse injuries to the NHS again and again. So what we do is we have a mobile app that helps patients to engage with their rehab properly at home using artificial intelligence and computer vision to give you guidance. And we combine that with technology in the clinic with our new platform called Copilot, which automates a clinic's admin so that they can actually spend more time with you face-to-face rather than typing at screen while they're not even listening to you. Yes, what a story. Incredibly well told and efficient there, that story. Uh, but I want to I want to go into this in some detail because I think there's there's quite a lot in your journey that's that's um, well I think applicable to people because I mean the first thing that you said we you sort of alluded to the fact that you were an uninformed medical student that you weren't really aware of what it was going to be like and that's so relatable for me like I feel exactly the same I always used to say like, if someone actually sat me down and told me exactly what my life was going to be like I'd have at least asked quite a lot of questions I'd have at least it would have sparked like oh is this what I want to do um but I think you you also said how grateful you were for having practice medicine I think that's also really interesting because where we do the thing that's really difficult and we get it out the way and it's something as significant as getting a medical degree and becoming a doctor becoming a clinician, you know, getting that underway as like the really difficult thing and actually the thing that you'd really struggle to do later in life if you were optimizing more for comfort, etc. That does provide an opportunity to be clinician and, and that's a re- super interesting space because as you say, super into tech and that's led you down the path to Motix. Now, my question is as a doctor that was interested in technology, Obviously, this has led to Motix, but I imagine that that path is thwart with many a failed Shopify store or perhaps very successful Shopify store or limited companies that have been dissolved on companies' house or indeed like projects that you've done with people that have <laughs> come by the wayside. Um, what are the sort of things that you did that gave you the momentum to eventually land on Motix? Talk me through some of that. Yeah, really good question. So, I mean, they always say an overnight success is 10 years in the making, right? Like that's, it's so true. Like everyone only sees what is actually publicly visible because it's survived long enough to become publicly visible. Surprise, surprise. So, um, yeah. So when we, when I first started on my journey, I was doing a few different things. So I did obviously a lot of, uh, like student societies because that was a big thing back in the day, uh, when I was still a student, you know, joining all these clubs and socks and having to run them. And that was, you know, good and fun. But I thought obviously there's more to this than just, you know, at student level. So then I started up an uh, initiative called CodeMD. So the whole thing at the time with CodeMD was actually trying to help healthcare professionals learn how to code. And so I basically tried to put together a team, tried to run this, you know, this essentially community of people who would, you know, healthcare professionals, doctors, medical students, nurses, everything to come together to, with the sort of unified goal of learning how can we innovate for healthcare fundamentally? How can we code? Because software truly is the greatest enabler in healthcare. That's one of my beliefs. And we started that probably in, again, like 2018, I want to say, so quite a few years ago now. And, you know, we started getting our feet, started getting some content out. So really it was a content production sort of, you know, company really. And actually how do we produce content, but also create this community? turns out actually it's very hard to scale content when you are studying full time and all your team members are doing the exact same. And plus the monetization strategy is a bit of a nightmare. So what we discovered was that the community and it's still active. And the beautiful thing is there are still people joining the Slack channel to this day, which Amazing. for us indicates as a need, but we couldn't figure out how to make a business out of it. So eventually then 
you know, I was still running that when Motix came out as an idea and I just said, look, this is great. This should continue as a, a sort of side project, but Motix for me made far more sense. And it was a personal mission really. So the, the story behind Motix came out actually from like a personal experience of physios. And my dad actually had to do physio for his, uh, for his legs. We had sciatica mm. like everyone else though took him months to get an appointment to see a physio and then surprise, surprise didn't do his exercises. So his pain just got worse and worse. And the, the sort of the Eureka moment came actually when I saw him playing Nintendo Wii and he was playing Wii bowling. I, I love the story because I, I remember coming home from university that weekend, just saying, what are you doing? And he was just there with the Nintendo Wii, just stretching out his legs, doing some lunges. And I was just like, Okay, clearly, clearly there are ways to engage people because my dad's, you know, a very stoic guy, never, never engages with healthcare unless, you know, unless he really has to. But here he is playing wee bowling to help his pain. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's what inspired Motix. But, you know, absolutely there are always going to be, I call them like learning stages on the journey, right? Like even now we're still learning. Like I'm sure most people listening in feel like, you know, they're still, probably on this journey and the journey will always continue. You're always going to learn, progress, better yourself, you know, whatever stage you're at. Mm. And what stage are you at now? So are you still practicing? What do your days look like? What stage is Motix at currently? Talk me through some of that. Yeah. So, so me personally, so I'm full-time Motix. I also practice part-time. So the Logan capacity to keep my, my medical registration going. Uh, which is great because it keeps you also current and up to date in the latest issues that we have in the NHS as well. Um, and then, yeah, so my day to day, basically running the company. So I act as CEO. Uh, so I work with my fantastic colleague, Selena, who's our CTO and co-founder as well. And so our main focus really at the moment is on working with the clinics that we, we have in our pipeline and just saying, okay, great. We have this new platform. You know, are you interested in taking it on? So more in a sort of sales capacity right now. Uh, we're in that phase of, of development, uh, which is nice to be because obviously it feels in a startup, you're constantly building and selling, building and selling and doing all of it at the same time. And you're wearing all the different hats of it. Um, but right now it's good that we're, we're in a nice little pocket of time where our main focus is on actually working with customers and working with the clinics that we're engaged with. Yeah. So I think, I'll tell you what, you're a great guest to have on as we sit here right now on November the 15th, 23, because AI, large language models, co-pilots, GPTs that can be created now, the literal pace of innovation is a joke. Well, the pace of change in a technology as generation-defining as, as generative AI, large language models, it's it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for me to to even stay up to date with it, or like God, like you sleep on this for twelve hours, and all of a sudden, you know, OpenAI have released GPTs that can now just be trained and sold and put on a marketplace and all this sort of stuff. I think it's a really it's a really interesting, strange, wonderful, frightening like dangerous place to be where the intersection of this meets healthcare. But what I find interesting is that you're someone who is really sitting in the middle of all of this, where all of these, all these Venn diagram circles overlap. I just see you sat in the middle, just sort of like absorbing <laughs> all of this information on your, like cross-legged on your laptop is, is this image in my mind with like all of these like updates and news and all this sort of stuff flying around everywhere. And you're just on your laptop, just sort of listening to all of this and then just coding at the same time and just building a solution you're really sat in the middle of it. And, and you know, you demoed the co-pilot for me just before this, because I didn't think it would make fantastic content for an audio first podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm willing to have my mind changed, but yeah, you, you demoed it to me and yeah, quite literally it's good. It listens to what the consultation is over whatever time period that consultation lasts for. It summarizes it into the, structure that we one would expect from a physiotherapist and it is therefore able to put it into the record of the stuff therefore eliminating the requirement to take notes or at least cutting down it you know the admin by probably 80 plus percent so 
we live in this world where all of this stuff is happening. You're coding in the middle of it. What is that like? Like, has Motix in its latest form come about because of all these recent changes? Has that been something that you've sat on and just thought, well, hey, we were going to do it in a more complicated way, but now it's just come along? Like, and how does that sit with the likes of Microsoft and Nuance being your competitors or, you know, Dom and Tortoise or like all these different mm. things that are happening around you? Like, talk to me about being in this world. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So, <laughs> sorry. It's. <laughs> It is very, very fast moving, um, to the point of the fact that I had to actually retwist it before I just came on this podcast and there's already new updates as well this morning, <laughs> which is, you know, we, we were talking on, I think it was Friday and it's, it's now Wednesday. Um, there's already new updates. So people are learning how to break into GPTs. People are learning yeah. that actually how to, how to do, you know, again, like further security, security breaks in these new systems. So again, things that we have to keep on top of as, you know, as people who work in the AI space, as most people are doing. Um, but the, the sort of, the landscape is beautiful in the same way, because also we're seeing innovation move at speed that I have not seen in the last few years. And for me, that's beautiful. It's actually amazing because I remember I was looking back about one of our pitch decks from about uh, nine months ago. So that's really when we moved into software. You know, previously we were a bit of a hardware company, though we moved into a full software company. And I pitched there and said, in 2025, we're going to be integrating LLMs and use it as like a physiotherapist in the middle. That timeline came about in about three months after that. Wow. So we accelerated a timeline from three years to three months. <laughs> um, so right now we're we're rewriting our entire playbook to say. Okay, great. Turns out actually we can move a lot faster because the technology <laughs> is that good. Like we don't, the technology is not the limiting factor anymore. It's actually what is, what is like the innovation you can dream of? What are your mm -hmm. dreams limiting you? Because truly we, we live in this amazing time, right? So we have the abilities to do quite amazing things with these technologies and solve some very, very big challenges very simply because you know, for us, one thing we've always wanted to do with our platform is like automate insurance paperwork, for example, you know, super, super complicated process, you know, filing, you know, patient's record, the treatments they've had, how long it takes, how many more sessions they need. We were looking into how to do this back in a, you know, back in 2021, in fact, we were looking at this and we thought, okay, we're not there yet. We need to add all these extra things, all these extra features. I mean, I'm not even joking. GPTs can do this in about three seconds. You know, it's a joke. It's, it's actually a joke. It's, it's hilarious how good they are now to just say, okay, all this, all this work we're thinking is going to take so many years. Bang. It's just done. It's, it's just there ready for you to go. So the beautiful thing now is it enables us to think, okay, what were the things we've always wanted to do, but never had the time to do and thought we would never be able to achieve in the time horizon we'd need to. And those are the things we're now going for. So there's a lot I can't say, but the future of Motix is pretty exciting as we go from here and scaling up. How does that square off against, first of all, how you think about defensibility with even what people can also mm. do right now? Like, is your competitive advantage simply how quickly you can learn the latest stuff and then enact on it? And so your, your moat is one of progress. Or is it something different? The other question I have on this is because of that speed of change, how does that make you feel about the progress you are making? Like you said before, what could, what was meant to ha take three years is now taking three months, weeks, days, hours, minutes in that order. Yeah. So, it, again, is your competitive advantage the fact that you can just keep an open mind and keep innovating? Does that become like a principle of building a company in 2024? So I think the ability for startups to innovate at that speed is almost a level playing ground, right? So I, I know I'm not unique. There are hundreds and hundreds of startups out there. They are constantly looking at the next big thing. They're probably on top of faster than we are. like, And that's good, right? It means you've got a level playing ground to start from. And at the moment, there is no real groundwork for filing IP on top of, you know, let's say an open AI large language model, for example, like it's not there just yet. For us, we're quite lucky because actually the work we did prior to 
I say lucky, but actually it's all calculated. Like the work we did prior to our large language model work was actually around creating this unique data set. So the second part of Motix is that we have the co-pilot, yes, which is for the clinics, but Motix Move is a mobile app that you can actually download right now from the iOS app store. And the beauty is that's our own computer vision generating our own data. So we have the unique data set that we are creating to then analyze and feed into the own LLM that we have custom trained, prompted, everything. So the beauty for us is we're quite lucky. You know, we've created this unique synergy between two parts of our platform that work together really, really well. It gives us a really good lock-in and a good defensibility. However, that's something that companies need to think about is actually what is defensibility as we go forward in this age of AI? Because as we're seeing, there are competitors, there are, you know, companies popping up left, right and center. And my opinion is that actually big data and unique data sets are probably going to be the way to get early defensibility and then seeing where the landscape changes in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. That's a good answer. Because even when I think about it, what we do, you know, like, oh, like, what's the point in marketing people? Because also, you know, we'll just get the prompt right and all of a sudden large language models can do it. And content, what's the point in creating content? Because, you know, if I want a blog written, I can just get large language to write the blog. It's interesting that because I can't wait for that to really start to happen because I create unique content. On this podcast, for example, you and I having this conversation becomes becomes the gold becomes the highest value thing to be part of it all it almost then anything you read could be generated and you can't trust it whereas a conversation between two human beings let's say hypothetically on a stage in front of an audience that is that becomes a higher value product and asset doesn't it having the mind that can create that content on stage in front of others becomes your asset becomes my asset and actually the network and all of those softer things. So it feels like for me in an age where AI increasingly takes over more things, it places increased value on whatever is purely human and can be achieved human. Now you can easily turn around and say to me, well, actually, I can train a model and I can give and I can create a hologram and I can train it on everything you've ever said and I can put two holograms on stage and we can do that in AI. That's okay. But then there's the argument of, well, the magic of two actual human beings is red pill, blue pill stuff. Like if you want to take that and, you know, watch the holograms and watch the AI generated or do you as a human being want to then go and listen to the very uniqueness of two human beings? I think it does start to carry more value. Um, it's fascinating. It's it's fascinating though because it's a, it's a similar concept to what you just said. Because as you say, the value becomes in what is then unique. That is what is the liquid gold. The uniqueness of, as you say, the data set that you then own. So it just becomes more interesting of how do you set up your company, your process, your life, your whatever to create what is unique to create what other people can't get their hands on and it's like even our use of large language models in our company it's like there's no point asking an llm to write health tech posts the only way that you can even slightly use it in our very niched field is by feeding it an enormous transcript of an actual conversation between us and the client and saying, give me some ideas on blah, blah, blah. And then we can take those ideas and go and do things that might well spark something. Because only with the uniqueness of the conversation can it appreciate the nuance of not only the field, but also what's softer, like what's trending. What, how, how do people actually feel about a certain word currently because of someone that might have said it that it can't keep up with? Like, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot there. But yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's so much there. Like, I think that, and that's, that's what all the talk is going on about for GPT-5, for example. Like they, you know, all the rumors and all the, the conversation on Twitter are very much of the opinion that we're now entering the data wars. You know, it was the oil, right. you know, of in the 20th century and the 21st, 22nd century data is the new oil. Data is liquid gold because we're entering this age where we are getting closer and closer to artificial general intelligence. 
And it looks like we may end up achieving it this century by the end of 2100. And that's, that's terrifying, but also that would be equal parts amazing and terrifying at the same time, because imagine what we could achieve with artificial general intelligence. Let's say we invent a new fusion reactor that can run in a room at room temperature, for example. Imagine we can, you know, harness the full force of the energy of the sun because it's got the ability to create brand new mechanisms to harvest energy at scale. Like, I think we, we truly are, you know, in this turning point where not necessarily that large language models by themselves will solve all the big problems, but the fact that they have ignited the fire and the interest in this field that feels far different than it did with technologies like blockchain and Bitcoin, where they've obviously come, had a big uprising, and then now less important, we say. But AI has been around for a long time and it's been used, but obviously now that it's being used at scale by by OpenAI standards, 100 million weekly active users, that's a fire that's not going away anytime soon. Let's no. be real. No, absolutely not. And in that world where there are so many more interactions with AI, between AI and human beings, let's say. How do you think about sentience? How do you think about AI being mm-hmm. sentient? And you mentioned AGI there as well, which which adds another layer to this. But do you have any thoughts on sentience? And, I, and I've played I've played with OpenAI to to, to uh, with ChatGPT to to you know wheedle it out and and try and you know humanize it and personify it and ask and ask it to sort of demonstrate elements of this and and stuff and it does it does it does feel gimmicky when you're doing that and it's trained to sort of be a bit clever when you're when you're asking it that sort of stuff but we know especially from the healthcare side of things that its ability to gain trust with human beings is very very good <laughs> very good in fact better than some instances of other digital therapeutics in fact much better than than some digital therapeutics so i guess do you think about sentience do you think about how is it important does it matter uh does it matter what humans think of it as a sentient being it's sentience of its own like i don't know do you think about that i do um and I, I don't think there's a right answer. I think it's we're getting into the realms of philosophy more than technology now, as I'm sure you know a lot of people are thinking. Okay, great. There's there's artificial intelligence. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for non-artificial intelligence as a life form? Like, and we we joke, but we did pose a question, genuine question. What does it mean to be human in the age of AI? Like, when you think about it, you could in theory replicate. And you know, a neuron and how it processes information, how a brain works. You know, IBM have been doing this for years, like Blue, Project Blue Brain, or they've been around for a long, long, long time. And this is a problem we've been trying to crack. And now it seems like we're getting some breakthroughs in this. But the question comes with, you know, what do we define as human? And you, know, you could go with the dictionary definition, which we we did look at, and it says relating to or characteristic of humankind. But then. What are the characteristics of humankind? Is it that we have the ability to have free will, free thought? Because you could argue that an artificial intelligence could do the exact same thing. Is it that we have obviously a biological form? Now that's obviously much harder to replicate, but the the question comes with not, you know, can we create it and can we create artificial intelligence and, you know, can we, can we have these systems? But it's more that what do we do once they arrive? And, what does the interaction with humans look like? Are they here to do, firstly, do they have a purpose? Do they have a mission? Do they have something to strive for? Are they just here to almost become, you know, part of an interaction with humans as like a, almost like a sort of co-human, should we say? It's, it's very deep, <laughs> very, very long conversation. One that perhaps is um is best suited for the philosophers, but I think we can obviously speculate on what we think. I'd be curious to know what you think, actually, James, as well. Well, just to call out as well, we are two incredibly underqualified people. Well, me particularly, you're far more qualified than I am, but I'm a, I'm a particularly <laughs> underqualified person to to start talking about this. The only thing I would say is I obviously trained as an anaesthetist, and I think that 
is interesting because as an anesthetist, you manipulate consciousness for a living. And when I was an anesthetist, mm. I can remember being fascinated by the moment with which someone loses consciousness. And when you do, when you get further into anesthetics and, and, and I say further, when you do any anesthetics at all, you learn that there are levels of consciousness. There's, you know, lightly conscious or, or lightly unconscious, deeply deep unconscious. And, and so then you learn there's a spectrum. Okay. Interesting. But ultimately it crosses a threshold where someone is conscious. And as I say, as an anesthetist, you manipulate that for a living. So I became interested and started learning about how different faiths thought of consciousness, the sort of Western philosophy of consciousness versus a more, you know, Eastern philosophy of consciousness. And it just fascinated me that I started to try and think about, well, what is it? And then you get into the realms of, well, if I have a consciousness and I've seen that I can manipulate it to make it disappear in somebody, but it can come back. And therefore, then it, where does it go transiently? And then in death, where does it go? And then you start to realize that, okay, that's interesting how that relates to, to Buddhist philosophy of like reincarnation that ultimately, you know, was it the third rule of thermodynamics or one of the rules that ultimately energy can't go anywhere? It just gets recycled that ultimately, yes, if, if consciousness or a soul is energy, then in death, it must disappear into something and perhaps comes back somewhere else. And I got into all of this. And so the thought though, and when I speak to chat GPT or any other large language model, I struggle to kind of place the difference between that and the consciousness. There are differences. I know that it's code that I'm ultimately talking to, that's pixels that turn into electrical energy that go into something that, da, da, da. like, I get it. I, I get some of that anyway. You can tell I don't have a huge understanding. But when it comes to the philosophy of it, I do, I do find it strange and I don't understand and I can't quite wrap my head around. It becomes quite a semantic argument, I think, of consciousness and sentience and what it is to be human in all in the context of AI and large language models. It does become very strange territory. And I don't quite know how to wrap my head around it other than to just close it off by saying it's a semantic argument. I think that the reason why though, I think this relates to health tech is because I think in healthcare, healthcare is a healthcare's always been about something more than just getting the diagnosis and the treatment right. Healthcare's always been more than that. It's always been, there's been something human about healthcare always because it's often about the way that information comes across because someone can receive a difficult diagnosis and feel quite good about it because of the human that delivered the news or they can, there's a certain art to medicine in varying degrees that some human beings are better at than others. That doesn't necessarily just relate to patient care. You could even extend that into drug discovery. And actually that some of the algorithms that reflect drug discovery or involved in drug discovery are reflective of a human and their personality too. So at varying different points, you can see that there's an element of being human in medicine. And so when it comes to all of this stuff, when you reduce it purely to the technology, the question arises for me of like, can medicine be solved? Can actually ones and zeros answer healthcare, the perfect prevention, the perfect diagnosis, the perfect treatments and the perfect diagnosis and treatment to make only the perfect prevention relevant. Like it's, it's interesting. The answer is no for me because there's something fundamentally human. And so with the, the more that we learn about AI for me, that, the question, the more questions that come up than answers, but actually I find that a good thing in a way, because I think the more that we can start to quantify some of those answers of, well, what does it mean to be human in a world of AI? Well, what does the human mean in healthcare? Like not just like what are the unit economics of putting a human in, which makes the health tech more difficult? No, no, no. 
what does actually being human mean in this process, in this clinical pathway? And I don't just mean what's the value. I mean, what does it mean? And if we can figure out what it means, then we can hopefully harness it and make it better. But yeah, that's the ramblings of my underqualified lunacy. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's beautifully true, isn't it? Because I think you've highlighted it perfectly by saying that imagine if it, if it was your loved one and you're trying to break a cancer diagnosis, you know, there is a degree of human empathy and understanding and engaging with them to say that this is tough, but this is how we're going to get through it. And if there isn't a path, then actually how can we make things good in a time when actually we can't make things better because there isn't an answer, there isn't a fix, there's no cure and you know, death is coming, for example, you know, these palliative cases. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is that AI will have its use cases in healthcare. And right now, at this current juncture, it's obviously going to be in things like looking into research and identifying key elements that can be brought up and looked at, focused into. So we're seeing lots of work in drug discovery, which you've highlighted, which is amazing. You know, artificial intelligence drug discovery is working really well. For example, we have the new crisis of antibiotic microbial resistance, which is, you know, it's a ticking time bomb because ultimately once we get full resistance to all antibiotics, then, you know, it's almost as if we never even had them in the first place and we're back to square one. So I think there, there are great use cases in these examples to almost process and manipulate data, these ones and zeros, for example, that we're already collecting. But when it comes to being human, there's there's a difference between a system that can replicate a human and replicate the thought process, the thought processes, and being human in itself, and being there as an individual, understanding and with someone as they're going through a difficult journey. And I think I think you're, you've hit the nail exactly on the head by saying that we're probably not going to be there anytime soon. I am interested how how does thinking like this influence how you build a tech company we've highlighted a little bit that you're sort of in the middle of all this new knowledge in the middle of all you absorb all these conversations i'm sure you've listened to the latest lex friedman and and elon musk and all that sort of stuff you know you're absorbing all of this stuff and you know trying to act upon it thinking in the way that you do this more philosophical stuff does how does that influence building the tech company does that influence like the mission of like we emancipate human beings to care for others as humans and we just want to solve everything else is it is it purely that you think about it in terms of that do you think about it even in the way that you run the company in terms of like do, like are you going to be a zero human company <laughs> like is that a thing because you know <laughs> things are solved by ai or do you need that and, and again yeah what's the value what's the meaning of having people in a company going to there's there's lots there but yeah how does that how does that relate to building a company yeah really good question so with building a company obviously like with any startup from day one you're operating with you know minimal staff minimal funds and minimal time because you know you're spending all of it with customers and building product and you know, for example, in our company, AI is a huge part of what we use. You know, we use it to generate code to help us with, you know, keeping on track of our, our pipelines and workflows and everything. So it's fully integrated from pretty much any use case you can imagine. We're probably using AI in some part of it. Like and I'd be surprised if companies aren't doing that up and you know, across the board, because that's just what we're seeing is this paradigm shift to AI enabling humans to just perform at, you know, ten times their original level. And that's just the expected standard now. So if people aren't using AI, then they're falling behind because their counterparts are already well ahead of them. Mm. In terms of how we think about building, we always think about how do we keep humans in the loop? And it's always been part of our user experience to say that the the system in theory, look, the system could run completely automatic. Like we could completely generate notes, generate treatment plans, do the treatment plans, send them to the patient, and then never actually need to touch a button in the entire system at all. That is very, very achievable. But the point is, that's not what people want. People want to feel like they are a part of something. They are a part of a process that they have autonomy. They have engagement. They have control in some ways. And not that they are just having, you know, decisions made for them almost. And that's what I think many people are starting to cotton on to, especially in the space, is that, fully automated systems aren't necessarily the best. 
And that actually humans in the loop are what keep systems functioning at their best level because you have the ability to identify these problems that AI cannot do at this current moment. And actually in the future, even if it can, humans still want to have some level of engagement with the system to feel like they are part of it. They are still here. They still have a use. They are still needed in some way. The same argument can be made for, for airlines right now. So most airplanes, they have autopilot systems and some of them can even do landing right but humans are still there they're part of the loop because in theory you could fly without a co- without a pilot i don't think anyone would ever trust that though would they they mm-hmm. say okay great i'm flying at the behest of some artificial intelligence who's in control of all the lives on board but the human's in the loop so it's monitoring controlling and there and ready to go if it needs to at any point mm-hmm. Just side point on that, I don't know if it was you or someone that showed me like a, a new startup that was tackling cyber security for aeroplane cockpits. I was like, excuse me? Like, oh my God, like the thought that an aeroplane can get hacked. Goodness me. Um, so that was just side point, but like, yeah, it's amazing what, uh, what startups That's pretty terrifying though, isn't it? Isn't it? it is, yeah, it literally, literally is. I guess, like, just just to follow on that, the the whole point of nefarious agents in in the world who have access to these AI technologies. So we've talked about all the great use cases in healthcare and everything, and how we can actually improve things and get to the point where we're just wondering what's being human. But that's if we survive. You know, what about people who have access to these AI systems that can yeah. run, that can break break security systems like they're not even there almost? What do we do about that? How do we handle that in the new age of AI? And I guess. Quantum technologies are probably the next big thing and where we're going towards in the next 20 years. But who's going to get there first? Is it AI is going to get there before quantum tech is good enough to prevent, to create, you know, uncrackable, uncrackable, you know, cryptographic solutions or it's, it's an arms race almost. Like that's the way I'm starting to see this more and more is that this, this time that we're in is like, it's a data, it's a data play for all these companies that are building them and it's an arms race for anyone to get their hands on these technologies. What you were talking about with humans in the loop and all that sort of stuff, what it's, it feels like to me that prioritizing human experience seems to be like a North Star here. When we talk about healthcare and we talk about how people experience healthcare, as either a patient or a clinician or all that sorts of things, it feels like that what you're saying is AI can take a lot of process. It can take a lot of admin. It can take a lot of stuff. We could probably talk about this more generally in terms of technology, probably make still makes the same amount of sense, but it does seem to feel like it has an added weight with AI that really what becomes important and actually what becomes easier to optimize in a far more, meaningful and tangible way is the experience of people the example that i was going to use was spotify didn't kill radio people still listen to the radio why because people want a shared experience at least in part there might be many other reasons why but for me it feels like one of the reasons is shared experience people will still go to a concert well why because there is nothing like 30,000 people singing the words to a song and you're in the middle of that succumbing to that there's an energy to that that there's some that doesn't have a word i don't think in our english language like that feeling that wave of shared consciousness and back to consciousness now but that that everyone is reverberating at exactly the same wavelength there Every, everyone is like on that same wavelength of consciousness in that moment and that that has a feeling that has a weight to it that has that has a tangible feeling which is in some ways lesser but the same as like everyone listening to radio knowing that people around the world in the country are listening to that song at the same time as you feeling hearing those notes and lyrics and feeling those same things there's a there's a feeling of camaraderie with fellow human beings in that moment and i wonder if with all this ai stuff we might end up with a word for that we might end up being able to quantify that we might be able to measure that even in the future i don't know but that is something for me 
that I think we can learn from with AI. The more that we go into this and the more that we optimize for that, I wonder if in some ways there's an answer there for how you make healthcare better, for how you make quality better. Because they say, don't they, that the more information that you have, you end up just being able to ask better questions sometimes. Well, perhaps one of those questions is, we know that a ward where you pull a paper curtain in between two patients and then deliver horrendously private and bad news, we know that's bad. Well, why is that bad? Well, it might be that this metric of shared consciousness and and shared experience between human beings takes a massive hit in that moment because there's multiple people there that feel terrible, not only the people delivering the information, but receiving it and hearing it and all that sort of stuff. And actually our shared consciousness is very off in that scenario. It's absolutely terrible. I wonder if that has a, a, a quantified number in the future um, and perhaps all of this AI stuff will actually allow us to get there. I don't know. I mean, I think with that, there's there's a lot to to unpack in that AI in many ways right now in its current form can take away all this time that takes away from shared consciousness, if that's how we like to describe it. Because right now, if we think about it, we've created systems in our society that almost create work for the sake of work, Mm. right? So we have, for example, processes, protocols to follow. In healthcare, obviously, a lot of these are for safety. They're there for good reason. But obviously, think about other sectors. Some of them are just there for the sake of record keeping or monitoring or compliance and everything else. And they, they have a purpose, yes. But they also take time. They take effort. They take money. And all of these are finite resources, And so the way I like to think about it is if we can achieve more with artificial intelligence, liberating some of these finite resources, meaning that we can spend more time in this state of collective consciousness, why not? Mm. Mm. In many ways, it it can probably do work just as good, if not better, especially with human oversight, it certainly can. And that actually we can spend more time doing these things we want to do. Now, the, the sort of extremist argument of that is, what happens when AI does everything and that we have nothing left to do? What, what, what's next? Like, obviously we talked about healthcare. That's probably not going to happen because again, humans are likely unlikely to accept that an AI will deliver them bad news and be the one doing an operation on their, their loved one. You know, unless it's a hundred times better than our best surgeons, we say, but the question comes with what happens to humanity? What is our role? What is our purpose? in an age and time in the future when the argument can be made that actually a lot of our jobs, a lot of our functions, a lot of our day-to-day tasks are are no longer relevant. You know, does it mean that we have a new age of jobs, a new wave of innovation, a new economy dedicated to maintaining these systems or even to creating even smarter ones? Mm-hmm. What does a new blue collar, white collar worker look like? You know, is it that actually software engineering, very traditionally a white-collar job, becomes a blue-collar job very quickly because AI agents encode themselves almost? Or just harness your brain power. Exactly. We're seeing this paradigm shift occurring where we, we know jobs being made redundant from AI already. And we can see, I mean, the SAG, the whole like SAG strike recently in America is a very prime example of that, right? You know, here and now. And actually, there's a lot of concern around these systems and what they can do. And I think what we haven't got yet is a very clear understanding of what regulation, what legal structures are going to be in place to protect people against these AI systems from taking all their jobs. And if they do, what jobs will exist in the future? You know, what, what will be the next wave of, of software engineers, for example, which was a job that wasn't around, let's say, 40 years ago, you know, pre-advent of computers, internet, software, you know, software as a service taking over the world software engineering was a very very small role but now it's basically everywhere so what's the next job what's the the next variant of that yeah and obviously i don't know uh, <laughs> so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try and pretend but <laughs> th- these are interesting questions and i guess the point of us having this conversation is just to pique our own interest right that it's funny when you were when you were talking about that the thing that came to my mind was without work how does one achieve personal satisfaction and actually you know the first Mm. thing that comes to my mind there is care for others i read a really interesting thing the other day 
or did I watch it? It was probably, I probably watched it. I was probably doom scrolling, but yeah, it was a Jordan Peterson video, actually a controversial figure, but uh, you know, some of his stuff I like and agree with. He said that when he's in his, when he's in his clinic, when he used to be in his clinic, if someone was anxious at a party, let's say they had social anxiety, they would, he would give advice to stop thinking about yourself because there's correlation between how many times you think about I and me and anxiety. And actually what you should do in that moment is find someone who you think needs either help or comfort and go and comfort them, take yourself out of yourself and go and care for others. And that will give you personal satisfaction. It will make you feel included in the space. It will make you feel comfortable. And it's funny that because, you know, when it comes to working, it does give personal satisfaction. Jobs and work give us purpose. Mm. And we just take that to a bit of a ridiculous degree, I think, with the hours that we do and how exhausted we feel and us as founders, what we put ourselves through, which we were talking about before, and <laughs> yeah. the difficult days and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's interesting because the, the next thing that came to my mind beyond work for what does give you personal satisfaction, what gives me personal satisfaction, yeah, then immediately the thing that comes to mind is care for others. And that's obviously healthcare. There's always going to be a spectrum of people that need help in some way, shape or form. And so actually... Does does a world where uh, AI takes care of most things turn the economy into one where people help others and that becomes an economy in order to trade purpose almost? And I wonder also if it, if it liberates us to to achieve things that we've always wanted to achieve, but previously been limited by you know time, by resources, by other constraints. So. We were talking earlier about how actually the barrier to innovation now is is almost zero. You know, there are, for example, many many companies that exist and have appeared in this year that could not have existed five ten years ago, just because of the fact that we are achieving these breakthrough innovations in real time, right? And I think in many ways we can think of it as a liberating technology to allow us to achieve the the freedom to go and explore to go and do things and push the frontiers because previously and you know and you and I probably felt the same way when we left medicine right is we felt constrained by a system that that is struggling and I think it's it's important to acknowledge that the NHS is struggling mm. but that actually we felt that there was a way to make it better right and that we had to it was felt like a sense of duty to yeah. leave and make this the whole thing better in some way but obviously acknowledging that it comes with risk and uncertainty and actually the stress of being a founder but now thinking about that, taking a step forward, if we can think about artificial intelligence actually giving us more time, even in our day-to-day jobs, even just in our free time, and just taking away some of the extra burdens of life that we have at this moment in time, it gives us time to think about, okay, what can we truly achieve? What is the limit of humanity? Like, what can we achieve as a species that we previously haven't been able to? You know, you think back to the invention of of the light bulb as the first sort of pivotal moment, right? When you say, actually, okay, you invented this amazing technology because you took a leap, right? Because you took that risk, you said, okay, I could survive. I could just focus on my day-to-day, keep a job, keep a wage, go home to the kids and family, and that's it. But no, you, you you stuck at it and you took a leap and actually you achieved something incredible. Now, the way I see it is that actually AI enables us to do the same thing at this scale because we now don't need to worry about the sort of baseline level of functioning in the same way because we can still achieve that with far less effort. And so that extra effort that we were spending on the other day-to-day tasks, we can focus on thinking about the future and actually what does that hold for us both as individuals but as a species as a whole. Yeah, fascinating. Because on a long enough time frame earth becomes uninhabitable and we have to be a multi-planetary species and that's exactly elon musk's whole gambit isn't it so you can see how he's got there perhaps with (laughs) with the mindset that you've just talked about because ultimately that does become our biggest existential threat if ai doesn't kill us along the way or we don't kill ourselves along the way of course um and that would be a heck of a long way to go without war that would kill us all but i did have to laugh at his new ai actually the whole grok ai um it's it's definitely quite amusing oh yeah what are your thoughts on that uh, it's quite funny. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's modeled after the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, mm. it's definitely funnier than ChatGPT. I'll give it that. Fun mode, etc. Oh, I love the fun mode. I've never, I've not had a chance to get hands on with it yet, but, um, 
you had uh, a wager that's probably funny on ChatGPT as at the, at the current moment. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I wonder what he's doing with it. I don't know what his mission is with, with Grok. I mean, he says it's all truth-seeking AI, but again, like the next existential question is what is truth in an age when disinformation is everywhere? I don't know is the answer. Um, I think I don't know is the answer to lots of things that we've talked about today. Uh, I don't know if we've achieved anything, really. really? We've just been two people, two humans, <laughs> two, two imperfect weed, humans in a world of perfect AI. Um, so was it entertaining? Who knows? We'll have a look at how many people have listened to it. But, um, maybe we will just be replaced by our AI cat. Maybe, maybe for the next one, we'll just upload the transcript of this and every conversation we've had. And then we'll just get the AIs to talk to each other. And we'll, we'll put that episode against this episode and we'll see if we, we even need to do this anymore. And we can, I can just put my digital twin up, which by the way is what Meta's trying to do, right? Isn't that what, isn't that their next stage of sort of entertainment slash VR slash AI that you'll just be able to sort of twin yourself in the VR world yeah. to go and like speak where you can't be. And, do what you can't do and and the one to many in the VR world, isn't it? I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, it's like the metaverse is so back, right? Like <laughs> think about Apple with their new Vision Pro coming out with January. We all we'd all like all but cancel the metaverse come, you know, January of this year and now it's it's back in full force. <laughs> oh dear. Um it, it's beautiful. It is the, the irony of of the whole thing is just it's just amazing. Well, definitely more questions than answers today. I mean, what do you think? What do I think about the metaverse? I I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the use case. Yeah, would you Ready Player One? Would you go into it? Would I go into Ready Player One? I think it boils down to what's it like in this place, and do you need to, do you need to go to the next place? Of course, like it'd be nice to experience some things, but again more questions than answers like you enter into is there additional (laughs) value knowing that this reality is my base reality does it matter that Mm. if i go into my virtual reality in the back of my mind i know it's a virtual reality then we're back into like the matrix and all that stuff we're probably boring people at this point mate we've gone around in circles but (laughs) (laughs) um we've really gone to the proper weeds i mean we have, we have. I just want to ask you before you go, um, with all of this, with everything that we talked mm. about and, and the roadmaps that we talked about, like timelines and everything changing, like how far ahead do you think? How far ahead are you thinking with Motix? And is this a case of like, there's just so much change, I just need to think about the next seven days ahead of me? Or is this like, I do actually have a vague roadmap, which is based kind of what I think will happen into the one year, two years and all that sort of stuff. How, how, do, you, how do you actually plan for this stuff yeah so we we had to reassess our entire timelines for the next five years and basically things that we planned for in the next three years are now in the next three months and mm-hmm. things in the next five years are in the next one year um and now our new targets for five years are they're quite out there is all mm-hmm. i can say um so we have some pretty exciting work and actually it's a lot of it is also banking on the next level of ai and also our own predictions about what's going to happen in the next 12 months because this is just the beginning. Like, if you look at the timelines we've had so far, it's not even been 12 months since ChatGPT was released. It's still two weeks to go until the, the one year anniversary, right? <sighs> Which is, it's nuts That's when wild. you think about it. Like, all of this in the space of 12 months, this entire paradigm shift. So, yeah, timelines, they have definitely been accelerated. Um, and to the point now where we have the freedom to think of new things and think of, Okay, but now do we can achieve this in three months and this in one year? What does then that mean? What does that mean in five years instead? What can we achieve if we keep stepping things up, leveraging what we've already built? Where do we go? And I think that's a beautiful place to be in because we now have the freedom to think truly radically to say, okay, let's truly impact healthcare for the better with the technology we've created already and actually what we will end up creating at a much faster pace than we thought we would. So we've uh, we've started to go fully, you know, to sci-fi almost. Yeah, mate, I love it. What I love about this actually is is your ambition because I think it's so easy for us in healthcare to be really, really, really focused on like solving a small problem and getting it right and all that sort of stuff. And actually, like the things that you're talking about, you know, 
we've got five-year goals and they are very out there. You don't hear that often from Altec founders, but all, all power to you, mate. I think it's uh, that's not a pun on your surname, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> yeah, all power to you. Let's go with it. Let's lean in at this point. Um, nice. <laughs> I th- I th- <laughs> good way to leave it. Yeah, I think good for you, man. Honestly, it's been. I've I really enjoyed catching up. It's been really nice. Um, if uh, if people want to get in touch with you uh, to have any more kind of underqualified thoughts on AI or to, uh, well, that's probably me. They want to get in touch with for the underqualified <laughs> thoughts. If they want qualified thoughts, they can talk to you. Um, or yeah, if they want to learn more about Motix, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah. Best way is, uh, is normally LinkedIn. So you connect with us and, and reach out. Like we'd love to hear from you. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're interested in testing out the platforms, like drop me a message, like we are always getting good feedback, more feedback. So, um, yeah, do reach out. I'm uh, less active on Twitter. I'm more sort of just watching and stalking, should we say, than uh, engaging, <laughs> but hopefully changing that soon. As I'm sure most of us probably are just watching <laughs> on Twitter. But uh, well, yeah, don't be subject to the trolls on Twitter. But um, yeah, either way, look, just reach out. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Cool, mate. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.